0: This pandemic is far from over. This is the time to be extremely cautious and very careful. We cannot lighten up our efforts yet, not now and not for the next several weeks. Dr. Barbara Ferrer directs the LA County Department of Public Health. The damaging impact to our families and our local hospitals from this surge is the worst disaster our county has experienced for decades. And even with all the hope that accompanies the rollout for vaccines, the deaths from COVID-19 have not stopped. Christina Rothens is a social worker.
1: Seeing a lot of deaths. So it's not like death is something that I'm a stranger to. It's something that I'm actually very familiar with. And yet the volume that we have seen, especially over the last month or two, is just really hard to grasp.
0: Coming up, the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic in one Southern California hospital on the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. We're grateful that you're spending time with us today. Before we get started, I wanted to invite you to subscribe to this podcast. You'll find us on Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts, as well as dozens of other platforms. Search for Hear Me Now Podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. And follow us on Twitter. There, we're human underscore caring for curated content on whole-person care and updates on our podcast schedule. And thanks. As Thanksgiving gave way to Christmas and December gave way to January, a winter surge was already underway in Southern California, with COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths eclipsing all the numbers we saw earlier in 2020. And yet some members of the community continue to resist public health efforts to curb the spread of the virus, denying the lethal nature of the pandemic, holding super spreader events, and insisting on gathering in public without masks. LA media coverage tells that story over and over. We're going to have a problem, we're going to have a problem here because government is controlling this is communism. The Constitution was supposed to be we the people by the people for the people government up. up? So it's supposed to be the people up kind of government, not the the government down because that's communism.
2: King Bell promoted this party on Instagram along with several other similar ones during the pandemic. At the same time, a similar super spreader Saturday in Compton in the
0: 1900s. On today's program, we leave delusion aside to focus on the reality of the winter surge as we hear from a social worker and a physician in one hospital in the South Bay of Los Angeles, the Providence Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, California.
1: and taking a few deep breaths in my car before having to put a mask on. I use a mask from the minute that I leave my car to the front door of the hospital out of respect for anybody that I come into contact with en route. Um, Those those last few breaths in the car always feel really precious because they're some of the last few I will take maskless for the next, you know, eight or nine hours. I'm Christina Rothens and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I work on an inpatient palliative care team at Providence Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, California. I remember listening to The Daily, the New York Times podcast in January and February of last year, 2020 and hearing the horrific stories that were coming out of Italy and other parts of Western Europe and just getting this really strong impending sense of doom and bracing myself. And I feel like that's what we've been doing for the last however many months, is just physically and emotionally bracing ourselves.
2: My name is Zahra Esmail. I'm the physician of a wonderful palliative care team, and my team includes a nurse manager, a nurse practitioner, um, a nurse, a wonderful social worker, and a very, very talented chaplain. We were hit,
1: and we were hit probably, I would say the beginning was around April, But there was this sort of, I want to say it was like a crescendo effect. It was a slow and steady build, but it was never this sort of explosion that we were preparing for, like we saw in Europe, like we saw in New York, and the other parts of the East Coast that were hit so suddenly and so painfully.
2: So as a palliative care physician, I've been trained to facilitate difficult conversations with patients and their families as they face serious illness and try to cope with the ups and downs of the journey. The conversations that I have or my team has can be riddled with intense emotions such as fear of the unknown fear of dying, guilt about the past, unresolved conflict, and deep spiritual existential distress. I thought that having practiced palliative care for over a decade, I had developed a certain amount of resilience and inner strength when facilitating these conversations and trying to ease people's transitions to the end of life. As it turns out, I was sadly mistaken. 2020 has clearly been the toughest year of my life, professionally and spiritually. It has challenged me, toughened me up at times, certainly broken me to my core, brought me such an appreciation of each moment of life as a precious gift. It has opened my eyes to bear witness to the indignities of life, the frailty of the human body. It's caused me to experience human suffering in a way that I could never have imagined and allowed me the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity to stand by the bedside of many who died in isolation away from their loved ones.
1: Oftentimes, walking up to the lobby where we check in, we have our temperature checked, we have our screening. Do you have any new GI or respiratory symptoms? I always think to myself, of course not, why would I come to work if I did? But en route and on that pathway, there's this really beautiful entrance to the hospital and it has, uh, Providence Little Company is a Catholic hospital, so it has these scripture, these different Bible verses and scripture passages kind of etched into the the sidewalk that you don't always see, but sometimes when you really need them, you see them. <laughs> and right now that pathway is littered with family members who aren't able to come inside. So even though they're not allowed to visit so often they just band together outside of the hospital. I think it makes them feel closer to their loved ones, even though they can't be as physically close as they want to be.
2: Essentially, I think the pandemic has given me a realization that as human beings, we cannot control much or change much. But what we can do is rely on each other to build a fabric A strong fabric of connectedness and kindness and compassion and love for each other.
1: You brace yourself before you see what family members are going to be congregating outside of the hospital, envying you for being able to go inside. And I think about that a lot too, that, you know, I get to go inside. And there have been moments where I wished I didn't have to. Where I was dreading the day where I knew I'd be having a conversation with a family of someone who's already lost a mother or a father and was preparing to also lose a sister or a brother. And I really just wish I didn't have to go inside and yet there these families are that stand outside the hospital that probably would give an arm or a leg to switch places with me. So that they can go inside. And so I think about that all the time that I'm actually really lucky and that I have a really sacred and valuable opportunity to be able to get close to these patients when all their families want and all the these patients want themselves is to be able to be close to their people, the ones that love them. I think our team morale, you know, it took a beating there for a while. We were pretty, we were pretty beaten down. And as times like these do, there was resentment, (laughs) you know, there was unarticulated hurt and pain. But really more than any of that just an overwhelming sense of loss and grief as a team. We have seen so many deaths and we're a palliative care team. So, you know, for those people that don't know, we help the very seriously ill in the hospital to have the best quality possible given their illness. As a social worker, I really try to provide emotional, psychosocial, and and sometimes spiritual support to these patients and their families. So it's not like, Any one of our days pre-COVID were easy. Our jobs are tending to illness, very serious illness. And because we work in an acute care center, it means seeing a lot of deaths. So it's not like death is something that I'm a stranger to. It's something that I'm actually very familiar with. And yet the volume that we have seen, especially over the last month or two, is just really really hard to, hard to grasp.
2: Our palliative care team at the hospital soon became the Zoom team as we offered to conduct family meetings virtually via the Zoom platform. And we started taking in the iPads into the patient rooms so that families could get just a glimpse of their loved ones through a screen. For so many families, this was difficult um, in so many ways that I'm unable to describe because what they would see is their loved ones intubated, which means that there would be a tube down their throats and a tube going in the nose trying to give them nutrition in the stomach. These patients were not responsive. They were heavily sedated, sometimes even paralyzed, so that their lungs could work in synchrony with the ventilator, the life support machine. And I stood at the bedside many times to take in and experience these intimate moments that families would have with their loved ones. As I struggled to hold that iPad, wearing all my ppe mustering all the courage and strength that i had not to break down in that moment
1: the other day i was taking a zoom well rather an ipad to my patients one of my patients bedside so that the patient's husband could just be with her he called and said he was really distressed he knows that she's dying This actually isn't even a COVID patient, but it's someone who, as a result of COVID, is in a PACU or a post anesthesia recovery room with, you know, 10 or 15 other patients, no privacy, only curtains between them. And that is a direct result of the pandemic that what we call in the hospital is as crass as it is the clean patients the clean patients all have to be put together because they're not a risk to one another. And so there's no privacy. And I'm coming in there with all of the staff for all of those 15 or 20 patients surrounding me to bring a husband on an iPad in to just look at his wife. He knows she can't respond, he knows she can't say anything, but he just wants to be with her. And so I, you know, there I prop up the iPad on a bedside table that ordinarily is used to put food on and I prop up the iPad and I make sure that it's lined up so that she can see him as as closely as possible and then I leave her there. The patient and her husband on the iPad so that they can have that time together and I'm not gonna lie we are just like work people working from home have zoom fatigue we all have zoom fatigue in the hospital because one of the jobs I never knew that I would have is setting up these zoom meetings for families so that they can see and pray for and give words of loving encouragement to their their our patients their their people and you know families love it it is such a consolation prize it is not what they want and they will take what they can get and so so often we do a zoom call it feels really meaningful and good for the family and then the very next day they're calling to have another one and i can't tell you how many times i think oh i don't want to do this this is so painful but it doesn't take long it doesn't take long for me to think about those family members that I pass by on the way into work and how lucky I am that I get to be in close proximity to their family member. So I take a deep breath in my, in my mask, and my face shield, and I tell myself, you know what? He's been married to her for 60 years. Imagine being married to someone. for 60 years, knowing that they're at the end of their life and that they're probably gonna die in that hospital without you. And that's all the perspective I need to get my little butt out of that chair and set up that Zoom for that husband again. And I'll do it again and again and again until things go back to normal in the hospital.
2: My team held two memorial services so that we could start to process our own grief and pay tribute and respect to each person, each human being that we had taken care of and that we had lost. As we rounded on our list, our growing list of patients with COVID, there were moments of silence. We cried together as a team. We tried to listen to each other. And sometimes we had no words for the suffering that we were witnessing. What I call the barrage of surges, the Thanksgiving followed by Christmas, followed by new year. Our team by the end of 2020 had fatigue of all kinds. Zoom fatigue, COVID fatigue, wearing the N95 fatigue, family meeting fatigue, and death fatigue. You know as a palliative care team we are used to and can handle I must say gracefully when our patients die because we're able to quickly build rapport and guide patients support our families we do our family meetings in person and develop this bond with them in such a vulnerable part of their lives but with COVID everything was over zoom the best that we could do was connect with the faces the multiple faces we saw over zoom
1: You know, when you're in person with someone or even a family who's grieving, you can only focus into or tune into one or two of them at a time as they're grieving. But when you're on Zoom, like we are so often, and you have, let's see, earlier this week I had 45 people on Zoom for a Zoom goodbye, 45. And you see all 45 of their faces crying and praying and grieving. We've actually gotten to the point where, out of protection for ourselves, we'll initiate a Zoom, make sure we're available for questions, and then we turn the volume down. I actually only recently figured out the other day how to turn the speaker off altogether, because even when I turn the volume down, depending on the pitch of someone's voice, and you know, crying has a particularly high pitch, it would still come through the phone. And so I don't say that to sound callous or like I don't wanna be present for people. I do and I am all of the time, but it's getting to the point where we're being traumatized by this ability to bear witness to more people's grief than we're used to.
0: On today's program, the realities of the COVID-19 winter surge, as told by two caregivers at the Providence Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, California. Our guides are Christina Rothins, a licensed clinical social worker, and Dr. Zara Esmail, a palliative care physician. We'll be back with the conclusion of their stories in a minute. You're listening to the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. So what I'm asking you to do right now is to do the great reset in a good way. Okay, we're going to reframe it. Last night, about 150 of us went into Whole Foods and we dressed up like people that aren't idiots hiding from a virus that's not deadly. We did not wear a mask.
1: It infuriates me it is incredibly activating to see it and to know that it's happening. And I think, you know, just briefly, that's another unique element of what's been happening for us as healthcare providers is that there is no divide. Ordinarily when I do this palliative care work, I'm able to come home and and leave and leave the work at work. But I can't now because I I drive home and I see people gathering on the side of the street and it makes me mad and then I watch the news and I hear about another super spreader wedding and it makes me mad (laughs) so that's my reaction how I process it I think more than anything in my life this pandemic has been an exercise in recognizing what I can and cannot control And so when I sit with my anger, and I sit with my frustration, and I sit with my fear, because that's really what's undermining all the anger is fear. I just have to tell myself I can only control myself. I can only
2: control myself. I wish people who don't think that it's going to happen to them, who do not believe in the fact that they can be asymptomatic vectors and spread this virus and literally cause people to die. And there's no rhyme or reason, Sean. We have people that are in their 30s and 40s that we cannot save. I wish I could take the camera with me and show them how we need to isolate our patients. What it looks like when our patients need to be proned on the machine, on the ventilator, with tubes coming out of every orifice, the sedation, the paralytics that we use for days and sometimes weeks on end, and the impact that that would have on their lives if we were to save them sometimes i feel like shouting from the mountaintop to people to get their attention
1: i had a patient whose main person was his expecting wife who was very early on in her pregnancy who wanted us to do absolutely everything to keep her husband alive. And we did absolutely everything to keep her young husband alive. And despite when we do absolutely everything to keep these people alive, they still die. And I remember one of the other jobs that I didn't expect to have was advocating for these less than optimal, still a consolation prize outside the door or outside the the window of a patient's room visit so they're not inside because it's too risky for families to go inside when their loved one is COVID positive and on on a ventilator and their droplets have been littering the room for so long. But sometimes we're able to advocate for these visits where they can look at their loved one through the window. And I can't tell you how often I've offered that to families when I've been able to advocate for it, expecting them to push back and say, what's the point of that? Or that's not enough. I need to touch him. I need to kiss her. I need to, I want to lay in bed with them. And yet they say, no, that's fine, please. That's perfectly fine. I'll, I'll take it. And so for this one patient, this expecting mother, I remember when I advocated for her to come because despite our best efforts, he was still dying. And so she came to the door and I did not know what to say. There isn't anything to say. All you can do is hold space for that person and absorb all of the pain that they're experiencing and bear witness to their worst nightmare come true. That's really all you can do. And so I went over there and we're not supposed to touch each other, but I lightly touched her arm and I said, I'm Christina. I'm the one that's been calling you. I'm the one that you've been talking to over the phone. I'm so sorry and I'm here and I just stood there and I watched her watch him knowing that that was the last time that she was going to see him alive thinking about that unborn baby and how he or she would never get to meet their dad
2: And then when I have a moment to think, I, I try to calm myself and, and I pray. And all I can do is that. All I can do is pray and, and think that perhaps we need to do a better job with, um, you know, public health education and, and maybe have a different message. I don't think it has helped how politicized this virus, this pandemic has become. And perhaps if we could unify as one humanity, as one mankind, simply wear a mask and just hold off for a little while longer, because the vaccine is here, but just hold off for a little while longer we will go back to some semblance of normancy. I would hope that people would have patience and more understanding and just try to feel the suffering of of some families. And I think that's all I can do um, to keep myself sane is to hope and pray.
1: Um, those those last few breaths in the car always feel really precious and what this latest surge has meant is on that walk with that cloth mask that I'll soon exchange for a hospital grade simple face mask is seeing a what I presume is a rented cooler that we use for overflow from our morgue because we don't have the accommodations for the number of deaths that our hospital is seeing. And one of the things that comes up in the grief process is how how alienating it can feel and how isolating it is. You know, you go to the store and checker some stranger that you run into smiles at you or asks you how you're doing and so often people will say to me don't they know don't they know how much pain I'm in that I'm grieving that I just lost my husband that I just lost my mom that my dad just died and how it's almost feels like a betrayal that the world keeps turning that everything just keeps going, keeps moving, even though you feel like you're at a complete standstill. So that's the grief experience, just a single simple element of it that I've been exposed to and that I've talked people through and held space for and validated and normalized for years now. And the difference now is that everybody is grieving. Everybody's grieving. Everywhere you look, someone's grieving. The world is grieving right now. For once, grief is the norm. And the whole world knows what many other people will experience at some point in their lives when they lose someone they love. The whole world is feeling it right now so I don't know I don't know if that's a silver lining but there is something to this there's something to how universal this experience is there's been no escaping this and I don't care you know and I don't I guess I want to say I don't mean to say that there haven't been certain groups that are disproportionately affected by this this has not affected everybody the same and I would never I would never venture to say that. In fact, some of the most painful, painful elements of my job have been seeing how disproportionately this pandemic has affected our underserved, low-income communities that our hospital serves, who you know are essential workers, who don't have the luxury to work from home, who don't have jobs that enable them to work from home who live in multi-generational homes, who don't mean to get their, you know, mother, grandmother sick, but have no other option because they're working at LAX or they're working at a a local grocery store and they can't quarantine from one another. I think they have the space for that. So yeah, I don't mean to say that everyone's been impacted by this in the same way. There's a differential experience without question. And it is one of the biggest tragedies for me to have seen firsthand and read a lot about and listened to a lot about comparative suffering. And it doesn't serve us and everyone is suffering, right? Even if it's because they didn't get to go on that vacation that they had planned or they're not able to see their loved ones across the country. We've all been suffering and we've all been grieving. And I only hope that at some point when we're on the brink of healing from all of this, which I can feel, I can just with this vaccine, I can taste it, I can see it. I know we're, I know we're getting there. I know that we're on the road to recovery, even though it's gonna hurt probably a lot more before we get there. I only hope this communal experience of grief and suffering and loss and pain will be an opportunity for us. The perspective we need to to come together and to love each other and to be kinder to one another and to appreciate each other. This fragility of life that we've all now been exposed to whether by first degree or third or fourth, that we carry it with us. Because I think it is a lot harder to be unkind to someone to push someone away or to delay saying, and I love you. When you keep that sense of uncertainty and fragility of this life close to you.
0: Our deep, deep thanks to Christina Rothens, licensed clinical social worker, and Dr. Zara Esmel, Palliative Physician, both caregivers in Torrance, California, at the Providence Little Company of Mary Medical Center. Our special thanks to Dr. Matt Gonzalez. On our next program, we'll hear from hospital staff from around the Providence system, as we mark the anniversary of caring for the first COVID-19 patient in the United States. Our work is critical, but, you know, it should be largely unseen when someone turns on the faucet. They shouldn't have to think about the pipe. They should just get water and we are the pipe. We are a piece of the puzzle that delivers platforms the caregivers need, but they're the real miracle out there face-to-face with the people in need in the community every day in our hospital. As the IT department, we're just here to ease their way, both the patients and the peer caregivers. We'll talk about the mission of providing care during a pandemic and the work behind the scenes that has kept hospitals going. That's on our next program. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on Twitter at human underscore caring. And we invite you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Overcast, Spotify, and many, many other platforms. And tell your friends about us. We're grateful for the mentions and your help spreading the word. Our stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Scott Acourt and Melody Fawcett. Our executive producer is Mike Drummond. We have research help from Seema Bhakta, Amanda Schwartz, Sarah Vescuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.